And he shook his head and he said, well, why don't you try something less inflammatory? <laughs> so I've decided to tell you why I don't believe in Christianity. And reading Thomas Merton, a Catholic mystic of the past century, he said, we should all still be Jews. And I think he is correct. If we were, it would look something like this. Women in our society are valued on what? This is not a rhetorical question. This is <laughs> what, on what basis do we value women? Beauty, exactly. It's how hot they are or how good they look. Um, we don't value them on who they are or what they do. We value them on their physical appearance. Um, we judge men on what they do. So whenever you go to a social gathering, there's small talk and meeting people, and the women are talking about kids and clothes, and they are sizing each other up with these little furtive glances, and they keep score. My legs are better than hers. If my butt was that big, I wouldn't wear those clothes. I wonder where she gets her hair cut. Those are definitely plastic. The man, less sophisticated, will ogle the sculptures and stuff themselves at the buffet table, and then they will ask other men what they do. So I've decided at the next party, when someone asks me what I do, I'm just going to say, I'm a Jew. <laughs> Hi. My name's Steve. What do you do? Oh, I'm Gary Boydston. I'm an astrophysical engineer. We're working on developing a device to express the weight element contributions of the seismic reactive beam of light. In terms of distance, force, foot pounds, it reflects off of bald heads. Ah, I say knowingly. I nod my head. He smiles. From the widening of my pupils, he has, knows I have either eaten a ghost chili or he has won round one of job status. Round two begins. Haughtily, he says, so, Steve, what do you do? My pupils narrow to an arrow point. A slight smirk bends one corner of my lip. I think... Top this, you engineering freak. <laughs> My name's Steve. I'm a Jew. <laughs> now, he's got nowhere to go except back to the buffet table. He stuffs some shrimp into his suit coat pocket next to his graphic calculator, and I have won. But I've decided to be a Jew because I don't believe in Christianity. I want to be a first-century Jew. I want to sit on the mountainside and listen. I don't want to get real close. I don't want to get strung up or flogged or crucified or anything. But I want to listen to him speak. I want to believe that he is the Messiah. He is the God that we've been looking for. I want to be where the Christ of reality 
met the reality of the world. I want to go back to the time when Christ was Christ and not a religion. I want to go back to the moment when the whole point of his coming was that every man might experience union with God through him as he lived it. I want to go back to the time before Christianity became a religion of the Pharisees and a routine of religion that creates God at our level. The reason I don't believe in Christianity basically has to do with the salvation of Vito Corleone. Now, this is the working title of my dissertation. And at the breakfast, that breakfast the other day, I was with my son-in-law, David, and I tried out the title. And he gave me this quizzical look, and I thought, is it possible that he has never seen The Godfather? According to Mario Puzo, the author of The Godfather, Vito Corleone, an Italian immigrant, was born in Corleone, Italy in 1892, and he migrated to Hell's Kitchen, New York City, in 1910. Here we see a picture of him as a small child. I can't even look at that picture. (laughs) He met a good Catholic girl. He had a good Catholic wedding and some little bambinos. Here we see him as a young man. He was a hardworking young man at the local grocery store until the godfather of Hell's Kitchen, New York, Don Fanucci, <laughs> cost him his job and began putting the squeeze on Vito's family and relatives. So he did what every good Sicilian boy would do. He bought a gun and shot Don Fanucci several times in the head. Here we see him as the hardened criminal. So, on Saturday, Vito goes to confession, and the priest hears his confession and assigns him penance and forgives his sin. And on Sunday, he dutifully attends Mass. He has his children baptized and confirmed. He gives large amounts of money to the church. And the rest of the week, he is having people killed. He is stealing, running prostitution, cheating, living a life of crime. And according to Catholic dogma, which has equated the observance of tradition and the participation in sacraments with salvation, Vito Corleone is saved. Now, he might have a layover in purgatory, but his crime family has enough juice to pray him out. But, before we turn to each other and nod knowingly to our fellow Protestants, see, I knew all those Catholics were going to hell. According to prevailing Protestant doctrine, which has followed a path towards ethical morality, 
concentrated on how we appear rather than who we are, what rules of the denomination we obey, whether we tithe or abstain from dancing or dance or smoke or don't smoke or wear zippers or buttons. According to what we do for God, Vito is going to heaven because we all know once saved, always saved. And Vito once asked God into his heart. So I ask myself, did Christ really come to make a religion? Through Catholic doctrines of the religion of works or Protestant moralism leading to exclusivity of salvation, we've created a church that has withdrawn itself from the life of the world. We are Pharisees, adhering to our denominational letter of the law, but we have lost the truth of Christ. And we have lost the spirituality to pursue his will. We fashioned a God that fits in our pocket. He sanctions our government. He supports our political party. He acquiesces to our spiritual interpretations. He smiles at our corner on truth, which confirms that only we are going to heaven and the whole rest of the world is going to hell. We've created a myth of God, which condones even that which would compromise God's standards. We are Catholics who live like Vito Corleone week after week and then wipe it out at confession. We are Protestants that burn and kill abortion activists, promote family values so that we can rant against homosexuals, and then we divorce our wives. We measure the world against our personal doctrines. We are closer to the church of the Pharisees than we are to the church of Christ. We've extinguished the burning bush, and we don't know how to relight it. The religion of Jesus has become the religion about Jesus. So, I don't believe in Christianity because I have come to believe that the Christian is not a person who the church would call a Christian, or other Christians would call a Christian. It is a person who Jesus would call a Christian, a man after his own heart, a man who shapes his life after the life of Christ. So we return to Vito Corleone. When Vito looks in the mirror, he sees a saved man. But who does God see? I think salvation begins with the understanding that Jesus is not a man filled with God's spirit. He's not a separate entity. He's not a tool or a means by which God chose to save less than 4% of the world's population. He is God. He is the God that all men have looked for and sought for. He is the fulfillment of the ancient religions. He is the God that all post-Advent religions have missed in their necessity to define him. 
He is the turning point of all of creation. A couple weeks ago, I had Greek school for my honors world history students, and we dressed in bedsheets, and we ate grapes, and we laid on the grass, and we talked philosophy. And one of the questions was, what is the highest truth? So 20 minutes later, we divided into two groups of 15-year-olds who, in their accumulated wisdom and knowledge, absolutely knew what the highest truth was. Well, actually, there were three groups. There were the religious kids, there were the atheists, and there was one LDS student. So I cautioned cautioned them with this analogy, telling them that they had all constructed a closet for themselves and walked into it and closed the door. The closet had been built by what they had adopted from their parents or their religious leaders, their friends, their teachers, occasional readings, popular opinion, mostly what their friends thought. The atheists had adopted a religion of the world. The religious kids had constructed a mythology. The LDS boy was in a little bit different closet because not only had he constructed a closet for himself, but then he had cut a hole in it and he was screaming at everybody that passed by that they were all going to hell but him. I dislike ignorance or arrogance in this case, especially from 14-year-olds who think they're smarter than me. So I taunted him a little bit. Do you realize, I said, that in regard to the whole world population living and dying since 1830 when your church was founded, and the insistence that only you are saved? Do you realize that you are saying statistically that even though God God created everybody, he is only saving you? So since 1830, God has saved 0.0001% of the whole world population. Is that logical? But before we gloat again, the percentage for Christianity since the advent of Christ in the year zero is about 3.7% of the world's population. The kids were idiots. They knew nothing of personal experience from study or from seeking. And I shared with them my own quest, which began 20 years ago in Singapore when I posed a question to God. Are you real? Show me if you are real. And I traced that journey through reading every holy book of every religion and all commentaries and sources I could lay my hands on and sitting out in nature for hours waiting for God to speak. And what I have found is that he keeps getting bigger. When I think I know something, there's more to know. And when he reveals something of himself to me, he's just bigger than that. And I've discovered he cannot be held in a book. He cannot be held by a doctrine. He is much bigger than anything that we can fashion. I've discovered that no words can save us. No dogma or doctrine or religious membership can save us. No mythology of religion can save us. No recitations or sacraments 
or moral conduct or good works can save us. And so we begin with the understanding of the reason for Jesus. And we must accept the truth of Mary and the birth of Christ. We must look at Jesus and understand he is not just the representative of God. He is God. We must look at Jesus and understand and ask our heart, ask him into our hearts, and this is the beginning. But the beginning cannot lead to the end. The naming of Christ is a beginning. If that was all we had to do, then how do we deal with this scripture? Matthew 7, 21, 23. Knowing the correct password, master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my Father wills. I can see it now at the final judgment, thousands strutting up to me and saying, Master, we preach the message, we bash the demons. Our God-sponsored projects had everyone talking. And you know what I'm going to say? You missed the boat. You don't impress me. You're out of here. The real name of Christ, the one under which we might be saved, is not the literal composition of the sounds Jesus, but is the spiritual and universal reality of Jesus by which we hold our lives accountable. It's not the naming of a name. It's the realization of the life of Jesus where we need to begin. So, subsequent to Greek school and the discussion of the philosophers, I've had several students come to me and talk about seeking the reality of God and our conversation centered on what we're talking about today, finding God as he exists on his own, within the church, but outside religion. And wouldn't that change our perspective if we came into church to actually think that he might show up instead of just ticking off the church box before kickoff? The essayist Annie Diller put it this way. On the whole... I do not find Christians outside of those already dead sufficiently sensible of their condition. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we're talking about? Does anyone really believe what we casually say we believe? The churches are children playing with chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to casually stroll into his presence, drinking coffee and wearing velvet hats. We should be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares and lash us to our pews. For this sleepy God, which we casually serve, may actually one day show up. In the high holy days of the high priest, when he was about to enter the holy of holies, they would tie a rope around his ankle and put tinkling bells on his robe. And that way, if he died in the presence of God, they could drag him out. When the bells stopped tinkling, they would drag out the dead body. What if we came to church like that? With the expectation that God would be here 
What if we lived our lives like that? Understanding that Christ is not our buddy, our errant sibling, a stranger who sits afar off and nods at the waywardness of our life. But he is God the creator, the powerful, the almighty. And when we stop tinkling, it's over. reason that Jesus came to earth is to show us the face of God. He is God. The Word was first. The Word present to God. God present to the Word. The Word was God. He came to make God known to us. He came to create us anew. But whoever did want him, who believed he was who he claimed and would do what he said, he made to be their true selves, their child, God's selves. These are the God-begotten. He came to relieve us of the law. He came to relieve us from rituals and sacrifices. He came to relieve us of sin. He came to relieve us of the ancient religions so that we might enter into freedom of relationship. He came to show us that there is an afterlife, and with it, a reckoning. But most of the time, most all of his words, his parables, his stories, the history of his life, it's the living of his life is concerned, and the pattern of life that will lead us to the Father. If he did come to create a religion, it's the religion of life, not the religion of doctrine. And so we come to this verse that to me sums up God's purpose. John fourteen six. Master, we have no idea. Thomas said, Master, we have no idea where you are going. How do you expect us to know the road? And Jesus said, I am the road. Also the truth, also the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. From the inception of Christianity, the church has used this verse to promote exclusivity of salvation. Only people who ask Christ into their hearts are saved. We have fashioned our closet around this verse. And we're cut a hole in it and we're yelling at everybody else that passes by. We are saved. You are not. On this verse, Catholics launched crusades in the Inquisition. On this verse, Protestants hunted witches and burned heretics and created a personal savior, which in turn created the individual interpretation of scripture, which in turn has created 3,000 Protestant denominations, each one proclaiming itself the passage to salvation. But this verse is bigger than that. The key word in the scripture is the word by. In Aramaic, a common form of Hebrew in the first century, the language in which John writes, the word by can be interpreted and has been interpreted in various translations as of through, or apart from. So, 
just for a moment, I want you to leave everything that you have heard about this verse in your life, the traditional Protestant utterance of that verse to support salvation, and ponder the possibility that what he is talking about is not his name, but his life. No one comes to the Father but by my life. No one comes to the Father but through my life. No one comes to the Father apart from my life. I am the truth, he says. The truth of Jesus is that he is life. I am the life. The truth of the life of Christ is that his life is our road to salvation. I am the road, he says. It is the road that he walked for 33 years. It is the road that he calls us on. Our truth is that we believe he is who he said he was. Our life is the promise of eternity. Our road is traveling the road that Jesus walked ahead of us. The way to the Father is the way we pattern our life after his life. It is the way our lives reflect the will of the Father. I believe that this is the reason why he came. It is not to create Christianity. It was to show us in our freedom how to live a life that would get us to the Father. I think the purpose of this verse is to remind us that we have only begun when we name the name of Christ. And the journey to perfection is the road to be traveled in the life of Christ. How would our lives change? if we thought that you and I, the Vito Corleones of the world, could not be saved by naming a name or participating in a sacrament or doing good works or adhering to doctrinal positions or showing up on a Sunday morning or calling ourselves Christians. What if the truth of this passage of Scripture is that we actually have to live our lives like Christ? What if our salvation is dependent on who we are instead of how we appear? I have moments when I'm close sometimes to that life. I'll lay in bed at night and say, Damn, I actually didn't swear today. (laughs) But most nights I have to get back out of bed. And I open the patio door and I walk out among the stars and I ask for forgiveness. I ask for a fresh start. For a long time, this passage baffled me. It's the confession of the thief on the cross in Luke 23. Have you no fear of God? You're getting the same as him. We deserve this, but not him. He has done nothing to deserve this. 
And then Jesus said, and then he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus said, don't worry, I will. Today, you will join me in paradise. How could someone that had lived a life apart from God, the life of Vito Corleone, be in paradise? But if the life of Jesus is the road to the Father, then we cannot discount this scripture. The thief is saved not by how he lived before he knew Christ. He's saved by knowing who Christ was and by the intent of his heart. It is not the obedience to sacraments or ritual or doctrine. It is the intent of our hearts that save us. And so each night, When I go under the stars and ask God to forgive me, he does. He does because even though I've been a jerk, even though I am Vito Corleone, even though I am the thief, the intent of my heart has been to follow his will. And that's where he meets me. 1 Samuel 16, 7. But God told Samuel, looks aren't everything. Don't be impressed with his looks and stature. I've already eliminated him. God judges persons differently than humans do. Men and women look at the face. God looks at the heart. I'd like for us to close our eyes for a minute. And and I want you to look in the mirror of your life. The first thing we see is the public face. It's what others see when they look at us. What do they see? Do they see compassion and kindness and love? Do they see arrogance or pride or willfulness, deceit, deception? Do people say about us when they see this face, Ah, he looks like Christ. She looks like Christ. Who do they see in our faces? Looking deeper, we see the person that we are. The real us. The person that nobody sees, but we know. It's the person that does the same things over and over again. It's the Pharisee. It's the person who judges others. It's the person who calls himself a Christian, but isn't. But there is another image behind the other two, and that is our heart. And thankfully, that is the image that God sees. The intent of our heart must not be to become like Christ. That is religion. The intent of our heart must be to be Christ on this earth. That is life. That is the way 
That is the truth. That is life. Father, you see us. We are so thankful that you see us. That you don't judge us out of what comes out of our mouth or what we do in our weakness. You judge us by the intent of our heart. And God, in this room today, or today sometime, Lord, we will come and we will ask you, God, to give us the power to bring the intent of our heart to meet the face in that mirror. God, help us to walk on this earth as you, to live your life to become you to those that we touch in our lives. God, we ask your blessing on us. We ask your strength in our lives. Bend our will to your will, Lord. And honor the intents of our heart. Give us a new beginning in you, O Lord. Amen.